I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we return to one of our most popular features, the thrilling Ask Jeff. Listeners, you have sent me your questions on social media about the Constitution, and we've received so many great questions, and I will try to the best of my abilities to answer them. I'm also delighted to plug my new book, Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet, which is now available on Amazon. You have heard me plug mattresses and razors. How much better to plug this riveting examination of the greatest critic of bigness in business and government since Thomas Jefferson and the most important prophet about free speech and privacy in an age of new technologies of the 20th century. We're going to have a great program next week at the National Constitution Center on June 1st, which is the 100th anniversary of Louis Brandeis's confirmation to the Supreme Court. And we're going to run that as our podcast next week. Please do check out Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet. And if you read it, please let me know what you think. Okay, now back to Ask Jeff. My guest inquisitor is the We the People producer and podcast impresario, Nicandro Iannacci. Nicandro, take it away. Before I start, Jeff, I just want to compliment you on how well you say constitution. You've been very good about that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Our, our listener required good elocution, and we have tried to oblige. Excellent. Okay, well, we're going to be saying that a lot today. Let's start with a nice, big, juicy question about the Constitution and about how we interpret it. So a listener writes, what are the key arguments an originalist would use to support originalism? What are the key arguments a, quote, living constitutionalist would use? So many cases, they write, are easy to predict if you apply one approach or the other. But I... The listener feels like no one has ever put together a good summary of why one approach is better. Well, it's a great question, and you could teach an entire constitutional law class on it. Let me try to sum up the arguments for and against originalism as succinctly as possible. So the best argument for a version of originalism comes in Federalist 78, which was written by the rap star of the moment, Alexander Hamilton. And Hamilton is addressing uh, what's called the counter-majoritarian difficulty. How do unelected judges have the right to strike down laws passed by democratically elected legislatures? Hamilton says it's just a question of democracy. You've got to prefer the supreme law of the land, which represents the will of the people, and that's the Constitution, to that of an ordinary statute, which simply represents the will of the legislators, who are the people's temporary servants. You've got to prefer the will of the master to the servant, the principal to the agent. Here are Hamilton's words. He says, this conclusion that judges can strike down laws doesn't suppose a superiority of the judicial to the legislative power. It only supposes that the power of the people is superior to both, that where the will of the legislature, declared in statutes, stands in opposition to that of the people, declared in the Constitution, the judges ought to be governed by the latter rather than the former. They ought to regulate their decisions by the fundamental law rather than those which are not fundamental. So Hamilton's answer turns on the claim that the Constitution represents the will of the people in a more fundamental way than that of an ordinary statute. And if you accept Hamilton's premise, and it's based on the special ratification proposals uh, that constitutional provisions and amendments have to go through, uh, they have to be proposed by a 
constitutional convention or ratified by the states or by special constitutional conventions, and therefore the idea is that they represent a deeper, more considered, more deliberative will of the people than an ordinary law, which can just be passed quickly without necessarily reflecting deep-seated views of the majority. If you accept Hamilton's view, then obviously it's relevant to look not only at the text of the Constitution, but also the original understanding of those who ratified it. And this is a really interesting distinction. Should we care about the original understanding of the framers, that is James Madison and uh, Hamilton and the uh, gentleman who stood in Independence Hall in Philadelphia right across from the National Constitution Center? Or should we prefer the will of the ratifiers, we the people in state ratifying conventions who gave the Constitution the status of supreme law? According to Hamilton, we prefer that of the ratifiers to the proposers. The proposers are just writing something down on the on the back of a napkin. There, Madison's will doesn't control until it's actually sanctified by the uh, supreme will of the people. So that for, for that reason, uh, most originalists, and of course the late Justice Scalia was the leading one, say that we shouldn't look at Madison's secret notes. That's not what matters. We look at the original public meaning of the constitutional text. How would it have been understood to a ratifier or citizen at the time that it was proposed? And to find out that ordinary public meaning, we can look at publicly accessible sources like the Federalist Papers. We look at the Federalist Papers not because Madison and Hamilton wrote them, but because lots of people read them and the ratifiers may have been influenced by them. Now, when it gets to later amendments, like the 14th Amendment, things get trickier because the records of the ratifying conventions aren't especially good. The states had to ratify the 14th Amendment at gunpoint as a condition for being admitted back to the Union, so things get a little bit tricky on that score. But that's the basic argument for originalism. It's interesting and significant that Justice Scalia's arguments for originalism were so influential that liberal scholars ranging from uh, Justice Elena Kagan when uh, she was dean of Harvard Law School to Ronald Dworkin, the late liberal political philosopher, to Larry Tribe, the Harvard Law professor, said, we are all originalists now. In other words, no one, uh, uh, neither liberals nor conservatives nor libertarians, deny that it's relevant to look at the original understanding of the text um, and its original public meaning. But then the question is, is that enough? And then you get to the objections to originalism. And already there are uh, some obvious ones. One, I always remember because it's got such a scary kind of Halloween-like name, it's called the dead hand problem. <laughs> and Nicandra is laughing because whenever I teach this, this joke has no resonance because this was a long time ago. <laughs> but when Bob Dole was running for president a long time ago, he was asked, what do you think of Pat Robertson's faith healing abilities? And Dole hold, held up his hand, which was wounded in World War II, and said, can he heal this? And that's the way that I always think of the dead hand. Listeners, problem. what you can't see is Jeff <laughs> holding up his hand in a very interesting pose and kind of making a weird face. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. It, well, it's a good way to remember this dead hand problem. Absolutely. So what's the dead hand problem? It is the question of why the will of we the people in the here and now represented by statutes should be thwarted by the will of uh, dead white men as they were because the ratifiers back in 1787 were indeed uh, white men. Um, and why should we assume for a moment that uh, a statute today really represents the deep-seated will of the people more than that of people who died more than 200 years ago? There are lots of other objections. How do you find out what the will of the ratifiers was? They didn't have any single will. They may have been. Uh, they may have disagreed about what a provision was supposed to achieve. And most important, this is what I want listeners really to think hard about: what level of abstraction should you define the 
original understanding. So just to take a quick example, does the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution prohibit school segregation? Well, if you look at the specific intentions of the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment, the answer is almost certainly no. The proposers actually stood up in Congress and said, don't worry, this isn't going to affect school segregation. And those states, many of which were forced to ratify at gunpoint, probably, at least in 1868, shared that view. On the other hand, if you define the principle of the 14th Amendment more abstractly, a desire to eliminate caste legislation, C-A-S-T-E, or to prevent states from favoring one class of citizens over another, then school desegregation does seem more constitutionally compelled. The specific expectation of the ratifiers that school segregation was consistent with a prohibition on caste legislation now seems to be incorrect. So a lot turns on how abstractly you define the principle. Now I'm beginning to answer the second part of the question. What's the best argument for living constitutionalism? Well, it's really that almost no one not even Justice Scalia, not even Robert Bork, believe that you only ask what the framers thought and nothing else. If you did that, you couldn't answer most of the questions that the Supreme Court deals with. What did James Madison think of violent video games? Justice Samuel Alito asked Justice Scalia during an oral argument about violent video games. A Scalia response, no, what did James Madison think about the First Amendment? Or what, 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 what would the framers have thought about global positioning system devices or wiretapping? Well, obviously they couldn't have because there was no wiretapping or global positioning system devices. So everyone from Scalia to Bork to other originalists agreed that you have in some sense to translate the principles that the framers were trying to enshrine in light of new technologies. And in that sense, all of us are not only originalists, but in, in some sense living originalists, uh, to use the uh, name of Jack Balkin's good book on the subject. But once again, the devil is in the details. How abstractly are you going to define the principles and how uh, aggressively are you going to translate them? In the case of wiretapping, everyone from my hero, Justice Brandeis, uh, to Robert Bork agreed that the Constitution does prohibit wiretapping, even though the Supreme Court held the opposite back in the 1920s. Brandeis, in his beautiful opinion, and I want you to read it, listeners, because it's so inspiring, in the Olmstead case, basically says we have to translate the, the framers' desire to prohibit general warrants or writs of assistance that allowed the king's agents to rummage peop through people's desk drawers and to read their private diaries in, in light of new technologies like wiretapping. And Brandeis says a wiretap can reveal so much more private information than rummaging through someone's private diary that even though it doesn't require physical trespass, the framers absolutely would have prohibited it if their values, which is namely that rummaging fishing expeditions should not be allowed to inhibit freedom of thought and opinion and should not be able to menace people's ability to control our unexpressed thoughts, sensations, and emotions, that that was the core idea of the Fourth Amendment. So what Brandeis is doing there is identifying the principle, don't threaten freedom of thought and opinion, protect anonymity of political dissent, allow for cognitive liberty. He's defining the principle kind of abstractly, saying for the framers, the threat to cognitive liberty was these general warrants and physical trespass. But in the age of the wires, any search that exposes a great deal of innocent but embarrassing information has to be prohibited, even with a warrant, uh, Brandeis says. And, you know, I just can't resist reading from Brandeis's beautiful Olmsted opinion because it's so inspiring. And he is thinking about new technologies and actually anticipates cyberspace. He has in his desk drawer 
reference to television, which is a new technology, um, but he misunderstands television as a two-way technology where people can see each other through both sides of the screen. Basically, he anticipates Skype. It's incredible. But his law clerk says, you can't just see out of both sides of a television, and he emits the reference. Now, of course, you can. But Brandeis kind of uh, alludes to the possibility of television and cyber and webcams and also of fMRI technologies that can uh, read people's minds. And here, uh, if I can find, here it is. Here are his beautiful words. Brandeis says, the progress of science and furnishing the government with means of espionage is not likely to stop with wiretapping. Listen to this. Ways may someday be developed by which the government, without removing papers from secret drawers, can reproduce them in court and by which it will be enabled to expose to a jury the most intimate occurrences of the home. Advances in the psychic and related sciences may bring means of exploring unexpressed beliefs, thoughts, and emotions. That places the liberty of every man in the hands of every petty officer, was said by James Otis of much lesser intrusions than these. Can it be that the Constitution affords no protection against such invasions of individual security? So Brandeis there is a living originalist. He's identifying the core problem that the Fourth Amendment was meant to address, namely the general warrants and writs of assistance that James Otis denounced in a speech that John Adams said sparked the American Revolution, but he is translating them uh, so that they protect privacy in an electronic age. So the, the, the bottom line answer to an important question is, listeners, you, you, you don't have to just choose to be either originalist or living constitutionalist. Many people are some combination of the two. And the question of how uh, expansively you're willing to translate the Constitution in light of new technologies will determine whether you're more of a strict constructionist who looks mostly at the text in its original understanding and makes very few allowances for background and foreground changes, or whether you're more of a uh, you know, conventional living uh, constitutionalist who's willing to define the values rather abstractly. I'll close in this uh, uh, by saying originalism and living constitutionalism are not the only constitutional methodologies. They're actually about five or six. I'm just going to tell you what they are, and we're going to wait for another episode. I know you're going to be at the edge of your seats uh, hearing what each of them are, but if you can master these methodologies, then you really know much of what you need to to make a decision about what combination of originalism and living constitutionalism you want to embrace. And the methodologies are, first, textualism. Second, uh, originalism. Third, uh, precedent. Four, history and tradition. Five, pragmatism. Six, natural law. You got those six. Uh, Nicandro is looking very alert because he's going to go to law school in about a year and will master these soon. Um, they're really exciting and fun to talk about. I wish I could recommend a book that kind of laid them out, but there's not one that I know of. But on a future episode, if if the peop- if, you, if, you, if you wonderful listeners want to hear about them, we can talk about all of those methodologies. So thanks so much for asking. There are some of the differences between originalism and living constitutionalism. I'm going to be completely honest, Jeff. My blank stare just now was still thinking of Brandeis's words and the idea of government gaining psychic power. And it's very Orwellian, right? Like I'm just imagining one day not thinking, not opposing President Trump or something like that and, and being fearful that my thoughts will be, will be read. I mean, Well, this is not science fiction. So fMRI technology, functional magnetic uh, imaging technology, can, even in its early incarnations, people are imagining brain scans where uh, citizens could be stopped on the street, 
you're hooked up to a brain scan that have to be a little more portable because right now they require you to be immobile and in a large tube, but you could get a portable brain scan. And then you're shown a picture of a training camp in Afghanistan. If you've been at the training camp, your brain would light up in a particular way and you could be taken to a, a internment camp and be bludgeoned. Uh, if you have not been there, then you would be set free on your way. So this Brandeis's prediction, his words really are incredible, advances in the psychic and related sciences may bring means of exploring unexpressed beliefs, thoughts, and emotions are absolutely prescient. They're being fulfilled as we speak. And Brandeis's great challenge to all of us is not to be wooden, one-step originalists, not only to ask, would the framers have thought, uh, what would the framers have thought? They required a f invasion of your private property. If you can read someone's brain without invading their property, then a one-step originalist would say there's no Fourth Amendment violation. But Brandeis says if you do that, then you protect less privacy, less privacy of thoughts, sensations, and emotions in the age of brain scans than the framers took for granted in the age of general warrants. And that's why, you know, even Justice Scalia wrote wonderful decisions about uh, electronic privacy. He did focus mostly on violations of private property, but that's a difference between uh, a Scalian originalist who says mostly is there a property invasion in order to protect privacy, and a Brandeis who says how much of our cognitive liberty is really being invaded. I can, can we take one more beat on this, just because sure. it's so interesting? And you bring up Justice Scalia. He obviously was such an articulate defender of this approach. Um, do you foresee this remaining a powerful intellectual idea and methodology on the court as it stands now? A lot of people have said that uh, you know Justice Thomas is the only remaining sort of true diehard originalist. And we've seen Justice Alito and Roberts, uh, certainly Kennedy, but even Alito and Roberts, uh, drawing from those other things you named, do you think 20, 30 years from now that it's going to retain a, its potent force? It is a really interesting phenomenon that, as you say, only Justice Thomas is a self-proclaimed originalist. Justices uh, Alito and Roberts and Kennedy are not. And Justice Alito had this great exchange with Scalia in the GPS case where uh, Scalia is saying, we got to ask what the framers would have thought. And Alito says, well, obviously, they didn't think about GPS devices. They didn't think anything. And Scalia says, well, there's an analog. You could imagine in the time of the framers a tiny constable hiding under a carriage and eavesdropping on the conversations. And Alito says, it's totally great. Alito fires back, well, since you'd need a thousand constables to get the eavesdropping of a single GPS device, they'd have to be very small constables or a very large carriage. So this just shows the skepticism that Alito and Justice Roberts have of very uh, open originalism. In 20 years, I think there will be originalist arguments just because of the power of Hamilton's argument. When, when uh, Ronald Dworkin said, we're all originalists now, he meant, of course it's relevant to begin with the text and to start with the paradigm cases that animated the framers and to consider how these textual provisions were understood in their own time, which means examining the intentions of the ratifiers and the framers. But then it's just a question of what happens after that, how abstractly you want to define the principles and how much you care about other values like the stability of precedent or pragmatic questions or notions of natural law, which Justice Kennedy is interested in, um, very broad principles uh, that might be rooted in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Steve Calabresi, a wonderful member of the Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board that is um, helping supervise our 
wonderful interactive constitution, has a great essay on the interactive constitution that I want you to read. And listeners, I should have plugged these two essays at the beginning because they're the best place to start for a real introduction to originalism versus living constitutionalism. I'm going right now to constitutioncenter.org, and I'm just to help you find it. Um, did, did I uh, tell you, wonderful listeners, that USA Today uh, wrote this great piece recently calling the interactive constitution an internet sensation and noting that it's gotten nearly 5 million unique visitors since it launched in September? Completely incredible. We're also thrilled about this and very eager in its next incarnation to bring this great teaching tool to every student in America. But I'm clicking on the homepage, going to interactiveconstitution.org, going to that uh, beautiful blue Explore It button, and then we have the uh, great About the Constitution. Um, and there are four essays, and Steve Calabresi has On Originalism in Constitutional Interpretation, and Robert Post and Riva Siegel have Democratic Constitutionalism. And those two essays are probably the best place you can start to get a good sense of originalism by Steve Calabresi, founder of the Federalist Society and one of the leading uh, originalist intellectuals of our time who gives great arguments for it, and Robert Post and Riva Siegel of Yale Law School, uh, the leading democratic constitutionalists. That's one form of living constitutionalism who make the arguments uh, on the other side for their methodology. So check those great essays out, and you will be... Um, engaged, and I'm sure you're going to want to learn to uh, read more. And then, of course, read, ladies and gentlemen. The best way to teach yourself about the Constitution is to read as much as you can, and uh, you can follow the links. The I'm, I'm really excited that the Structural Constitution is about to launch on our website. Right now, it's the first 15 amendments, but over the next couple of months, we're going to start rolling out each of the 87 clauses that make up the Structural Constitution with the two leading scholars in the country on each of those clauses describing what they agree about and disagree about. This is going to be a constitutional feast. This is going to be an amazing learning experience for all of us. Imagine being able to go to your favorite obscure clause, the ex post facto clause or the no bill of attainder clause and find out what the leading scholars agree and disagree about it. It's just we're, Nick Condra and I are shaking our heads in, in wonder and excitement because it's going to be a beautiful thing. So keep reading. As one of the kids, let me tell you, it's all they're talking about. It's all they're talking about. That is great. Um, okay, let's turn to the campaign and okay. to some more questions. Um, this is a question about primaries, closed primaries in particular. Uh, this listener writes, closed primaries are held in a number of states, but some have argued that they are unconstitutional. What are the arguments for and against their constitutionality? And Jeff, just what are closed primaries? Uh, closed primaries allow only voters who are registered as part of a particular party holding the primary to participate and vote. So a bunch of people say that this is uh, unconstitutional. And uh, first, just to put the numbers on the table, right now 11 states have completely closed primaries. There are 12 states that have semi-closed primaries where unaffiliated voters are allowed to participate by making their choice privately inside the voting booth or registering on election day, and then they can participate in the closed primary. So basically, you can decide at the last minute which party you're part of. So the idea of the closed primary was challenged in 2014 in a case called Balsam versus Secretary of the State of New Jersey, held by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. And that was a challenge to New Jersey's closed primary system. Uh, the challengers argued that the closed primary in this state where 48% of the voters hadn't joined either major party gives both the Democrats and Republicans who are private political parties, a monopoly 
over the election process, um, and this is all being paid for by public taxpayer funds. And the Third Circuit summarized the arguments of the challengers. First, all voters in New Jersey, regardless of their party affiliation, have a constitutional right to participate at each stage of the electoral process. Second, New Jersey's closed primary elections materially impact the outcomes of non-presidential elections in the state. And therefore, third, all voters in New Jersey, regardless of party affiliation, have a constitutional right to participate in the closed primary system. In other words, the primaries may not be closed. And the basic challenge was a First Amendment challenge. The claim was that the system burdened the associational rights of voters by requiring that they join a political party to qualify for the right to vote. They also raised a 14th Amendment challenge and said that the system was inconsistent with equal protection of the law because it was inconsistent with the one-person, one, the one, one vote standard set out in Reynolds and Sims. The system created two classes of voters, those who participate in the primary elections and those who don't. And the claim was that the rights of the latter group were violated because they were denied a meaningful right to vote in all integral stages of the electoral process. We've talked a bit about voting rights jurisprudence, which is um, complicated, but uh, the Congress in 1982 did say in its voting rights amendments that citizens have a right uh, to meaningfully participate in the electoral process, although what that means is hotly contested. So New Jersey disagrees. It says that under Article I of the Constitution, States have very broad power to prescribe the times, places, and manners of holding elections for senators and representatives. And the state further noted that the Supreme Court has held there's no right to vote in primary elections. Uh, and they also argued that uh, the Supreme Court's decision in a case called Nader versus Schaefer from 1976 supports closed primaries. There, the court affirmed a decision upholding Connecticut's closed primary system by striking a balance between the First Amendment associational rights and the 14th Amendment voting rights. And the court in Nader said that to safeguard the constitutional rights of party members, Connecticut could legislate to protect the party from intrusion by those with adverse political principles. Uh, the Third Circuit said that kind of settles it. That, that very uh, clearly extends to the New Jersey primary structure. There's no burden the Third Circuit held in New Jersey because an unaffiliated voter who wanted to participate in a primary can just join a party. And the court said that while a citizen has a constitutionally protected right to participate in elections on equal basis with other citizens, no court said that that applies in primaries. As for the First Amendment associational argument, uh, the Supreme Court held in a 2000 case called California Democratic Party against Jones, um, seven to two decision that uh, the blanket primary violates a political party's First Amendment associational rights. In other words, the party itself has the First Amendment rights, not the individual citizen. Isn't that an interesting idea that the right affixes institutionally? The court said that these blanket systems, quote, force political parties to associate with, to have their nominees and hence their positions determined by those who have at best refused to affiliate with the party and at worst have expressly associated with a rival, a single election in which the party nominee is selected by non-party could be enough to destroy the party. So 2000 decision really interestingly privileges or uh, prefers the associational right of the party to define itself as it thinks best to those of individual voters who want to associate with whichever party they like. Nicandra, which of the two arguments do you find more persuasive? I'm torn because I think this is a, a a great example of something you talk about a lot where one's constitutional conclusions diverge from one's political conclusions. And 
I'm persuaded that parties should have the right to keep out people who are not members of their party. They are independent organizations. If one wants to influence the primary process, one should start a movement and create a new party. That's obviously very difficult. And one could talk about how the two parties now make it hard for people to 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 do that. But I think the principle of it is is correct. I do think, however, as a policy matter, I might be open to having these primaries, having the parties themselves decide to let independents, for example, be involved, given their importance in the general election, et cetera. So if I was someone, uh, you know, if I was a Bernie Sanders supporter and I was concerned that I had been shut out, as we've heard again and again, for example, I would be thinking about lobbying the Democratic Party and trying to change the party rules rather than uh, taking a filing a lawsuit. That seems doesn't seem right. Great. Well, I love the fact, of course, that you're achieving that great Frankfurterian frisson, that moment <laughs> where your constitutional views diverge from your political views. And you say that uh, if there's to be change, it should come from the political system. Of course, that's a paradox because we know that in practice, incumbents like to protect their own and Congress, the Democratic Party, if to the degree that it is sympathetic to Hillary Clinton, is not likely to be responsive to claims from Sanders supporters uh, for change. Um, for those and many other reasons, uh, Sandy Levinson, friend of the Constitution Center, wrote a edited volume a few years ago called Constitutional Stupidities. It was a rude, a rude title, but he asked law professors to identify which provision of the Constitution they thought was most, had created the most mischief. And I chose uh, article, uh, the Article One provision that basically allows states to prescribe time, places, and manners of elections and gives states almost total control over the apportionment process because that's responsible for the gerrymandering, for the race-based um, incumbency protection, and for all of the uh, political pathologies that are have led to great polarization, they've led to discrimination, and are unlikely to be changed by the legislators themselves who want to protect their own seats. So we may have identified a constitutional problem, uh, in this case, uh, the inability of citizens to have their views reflected by the parties without a clear constitutional solution. Gerrymandering may be another. Um, I think this, we, we, why, don't, why don't we skip uh, around in terms of the order, this question sure. of whether parties should be able to define themselves as private associations leads naturally to a wonderful question about another series of private organizations at Harvard University. Why don't we uh, talk about that? Ah, yes, Harvard. Um, <laughs> so Harvard recently, uh, this is a, someone uh, has written in, Harvard recently followed a number of colleges by adopting a policy that will prohibit members of single-sex clubs from holding leadership positions on campus. Uh, as well as not being eligible for scholarships like the Rhodes and Marshall. Uh, this rule will apply to students in Harvard's six exclusively male final clubs, five exclusively female final clubs, and nine sororities and fraternities. It is designed to discourage single-sex clubs and to promote gender equality, uh, as, uh, as well as to address exclusivity, sexual assault, and alcohol abuse in these organizations. So, Jeff, the question is... Does this policy violate the First Amendment rights of students? So this is a fascinating question. Our uh, Cambridge contingent has been very exercised about this, and we, we may, in fact, be hosting some debates about this question in the fall. Uh, but it's a broader question. It's not just about uh, these uh, rather 
uh, esoteric finals clubs at Harvard, but about the rights of private fraternities and sororities more generally to exist on campuses across the country. And just to put on the table exactly what Harvard has done, uh, uh, a letter from Harvard President Drew Faust says that uh, students will decide for themselves whether to engage with these organizations, but just as students have a choice, so too the college must determine for itself the structure of activities that it funds or endorses. President Faust does note that these male finals clubs have no official affiliation with the university in 1984. The university withdrew recognition of them, and they're private clubs with private buildings that they own, and the university doesn't in any way support. But President Faust said that captains of intercollegiate sports teams and leaders of organizations funded, sponsored, or recognized by Harvard College in a very real, real sense represent the college. They benefit from its resources. They operate under its name, especially as it seeks to break down structural barriers to an effectively inclusive campus the college's right to ensure that the areas in which it provides resources and endorsement advance and reinforce its values of non-discrimination. That is President Drew Faust. Now, I think uh, we at the Constitution Center and our crack research team, uh, led by Daniele Evans, Lana Ulrich, and Josh Weinberg, really need to dig more deeply into this question before we have a crisp answer, but I'm going to give a very quick take at trying to summarize some of the arguments on both sides, and then we're going to uh, dig into them uh, later. So the, the basic question, is this a First Amendment violation? The answer is obviously no, because Harvard is a private organization, and it's not formally bound by the First Amendment any more than Facebook is bound by the First Amendment when it makes free speech decisions. Nevertheless, uh, just as lawyers at Facebook uh, have more power over who can speak and who can be heard than any uh, king or president or Supreme Court justice, given how many people use Facebook. So for in practical effect, for Harvard students, the university is controlling the student's ability to engage in expressive and associational interests. So we're going to answer the question, are First Amendment values being violated, setting aside the technicality of the fact that Harvard is private or for, for the more legalistic-minded listeners, imagine that we're talking about final clubs at the University of Massachusetts, which is public rather than at Harvard. So if a public university like the University of Massachusetts were to institute a similar policy, the First Amendment rights of students would be at issue. The First Amendment does protect the right to free association, and it's arguable that a policy like this is a threat to freedom of association by prohibiting members of disfavored groups from holding leadership positions in student organizations. The captain of the football team, who was a member of one of the final clubs, could not have served as Harvard's captain uh, if this policy were in place. You could argue that the university is intruding on the club's autonomy by removing their ability to elect and appoint uh, members and uh, at their discretion, and also the student organization's autonomy, like the football team's ability, uh, and that the university is substituting its own judgment that students are unfit to hold leadership positions. There's also a question of whether the expressive interests of the student organizations are being conflated with the university as a whole. You could interpret the policy to require that student organization leaders are basically agents of Harvard, implying that they can only take positions that the university itself endorses. And that's a peculiar notion. Why should the captain of the football team agree in all respects with the policies of the university? Um, that seems uh, both descriptively wrong. Uh, students are not representatives of the university, uh, and they don't put away their First Amendment interests at the door. 
um, as well as uh, misdescribing the way people actually pers- uh, understand these leadership positions. There are also associational uh, freedom and uh, discrimination concerns. The Harvard policy applies not only to the all-male final clubs, which have gone back a long time, but also to all women's groups that were set up more recently um, for women. And to that, to the degree that the policy targets historically disadvantaged or marginalized groups, uh, these groups, as a letter by uh, FIRE uh, states, uh, have long relied on protections of freedom of association in forging their identities and agendas for the advancement of their causes, the ability and right of individuals to form associations based on gender, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, political viewpoint, or numerous other factors can provide invaluable social benefits. Okay, what are some of the arguments on the other side? Well, uh, you could argue that fraternities, clubs, and other organizations don't qualify as expressive organizations since they don't regularly speak out on public issues. Uh, The finals clubs are secretive. Many don't communicate at all with outsiders. Also, they may not qualify for uh, claims of uh, freedom of intimate associations, which tends to apply to small groups of people like families or groups of people sharing communal living, although you could argue that one on the other uh, side as well. There's really not a great Supreme Court precedent that lets us know how the court would rule on this question, but there are a bunch of relevant cases. Uh, In a case called Boy Scouts of America versus Dale from 2000, the court said that a law that prohibits discrimination against gay people um, can't be applied to force a Boy Scout troop to accept a gay scout leader because that would violate the Boy Scouts' First Amendment associational rights. In other words, groups that operate in general public spaces do have a First Amendment right to exclude people who don't fit in with their message. Uh, But there are other cases that say that that right is more limited in the educational context, especially when the school isn't prohibiting the groups from existing uh, or forcing them to accept members of the opposite sex, but just conditioning a benefit like leadership on sports teams on the clubs opening up their membership. There's a 2010 case called Christian Legal Society Against Martinez, where the court upheld the University of California's policy of requiring all registered student organizations to adhere to the school's non-discrimination policy. That meant that the school could require a Christian group to allow openly gay students to participate in order to receive the benefits of being a registered student organization. It was important in that case that the school wasn't being forced to accept the Christian, wasn't forcing the Christian groups to accept gay members. It was only saying it had to do so in order to get the benefits of being recognized by the university. Again, the counter here is that the clubs are not asking for recognition. They're asking for what Louis Brandeis so memorably and immortally called the right to be let alone. So that's just a preview of the thrilling arguments that we will be teeing up in all sorts of venues uh, in the future. And it's interesting. Okay, Nicandro, we've had some uh, full and frank uh, debates here. Of of course, I have no uh, constitutional views at all, being entirely nonpartisan, but I think you're a little bit skeptical of the free associational claims of the clubs. I won't ask you. Let me just ask you, what analogies do you think there are between the First Amendment interests of the parties, which we began talking about, and the First Amendment interests of the clubs? Well, that actually dovetails with something I was going to bring up, which is the fact that there are ostensibly single-sex organizations that currently exist at Harvard and will not be affected by these rules. These include uh, the Radcliffe Union of Students, which is a women's organization, includes uh, the Harvard Glee Club, which is an all-male singing group. Uh, On the face of it, these groups are actually, um, they're 
they are open to both sexes. Um, however, men don't tend to join uh, the Radcliffe Union, for example, um, although some some do or attend events. Um, and artistically, you know, the Glee Club would find it hard to accept a high soprano. It wouldn't fit uh, that mission. So what? I, I have a confession to make. Sure. Oh boy. I spent a semester as a member of the Harvard Glee Club. Yes, I did. You're gasping. Oh well, I know I, it was. It was just. I was young. I needed the money. Um, <laughs> but I, but I was not aware that uh, it's formally open to women. Re, re, can a woman really apply to sing in the yeah, beautiful absolutely. Glee Club? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I believe I really. I don't want to say too much. I believe it's happened. And um, I think it's the, the the bottom line there is: Does your voice fit? So it doesn't matter what sex or gender you are. It's just can you musically blend with the group? Um, so one, one, one more, um, sure. since it's confession oh, time, yeah. Nicandro, is it not the case, are you or have you ever been a member of a Harvard singing group? I am, yes. I was a member of the Harvard Glee Club for a couple of years. I also sang with the university choir and the Crocodilos. I floated around. Um, but I spent a lot of time. Uh, the Crocodilos were also single sex. Um, uh, but again, I think there was, a, there was an artistic rule that maintained that rather than some what feels to me uh, an arbitrary single-sex line that's drawn in some of these organizations. So one question on my mind is, beyond the right of Harvard to determine what uh, its space, its uh, civil society, so to speak, should look like, um, I wonder, you know, what is the uh, what is the purpose of a final club, for example, of the Purcellian being all male? What uh, what greater interest is that serving beyond the exclusion of women? Um, I think that's a reasonable question to ask. Um, sexism is not made up. Uh, and so if, you know, it's tough. I definitely don't want to uh, flush out a whole position here either, but I, um, I'm definitely sympathetic. Yeah. But just, but constant, one, one last beat, and we've sure. got to, we, we all have yeah, to do we, a lot more research on this. We right. have to give the arguments on both sides. But constitutionally, What's the similarity between a political party like the Democrats or the Republicans, whom the Supreme Court has said do have a right to define themselves as Democrats or Republicans, and these private groups that want to define themselves as groups of male bonding or women bond or female bonding? To me, the issue in the party's case is that people want to be involved in the primary process, and they they are looking for a way to be involved, they feel like they're shut out, um, and the parties, the parties have an ex they have an expressive purpose. They are they are not just general organizations, just sitting around having a drink. They they ostensibly stand for something, and they have an interest in uh, being united around this set of policy proposals or a particular candidate or or what have you. So I think there's there's a greater interest being served. With, when it comes to a political party versus these organizations. Okay, good. Well, that was just a tantalizing, thrilling uh, preview of this debate, which is not limited to the esoteric Ivy League, but uh, may affect the status of fraternities and sororities across the country. So really, this is not just a parochial. <laughs> yeah, and God knows, I, I know any number of people uh, who would be who would be full-throated uh, defenders of Harvard's policy, um, and I'm sure we could set up a great debate here. Who would be people who could better articulate these things? Yeah. Wonderful. We'll look forward to that. Okay. Uh, let's jump around again. Uh, we have a few more, but I think we might have time just for one or two more. Why don't we look at, let's look at uh, the Equal Protection Clause, actually. I think this is a pretty good one. Um, there are a few pieces to this, so take it as you will, Jeff. But uh, 
the listener writes in saying, we hear so much about the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, uh, and there are a few questions follow from this. Uh, how is, for example, the Department of Justice having certain groups of people under a, quote, protected class not a violation of this? Uh, for example, if Congress exempts itself from certain laws, how is that not a violation of the 14th Amendment? Uh, if people commit crimes against elected officials, receive harsher, pu harsher punishment than others, how is that not a violation of the Equal Protection Clause? So, yeah, what, what is this clause about? Wonderful. Well, of course, the Equal Protection Clause is uh, turning 150 this year. We are celebrating its anniversary as part of our wonderful second founding initiative. We just had such a great event with our friends at the Constitutional Accountability Center uh, a week or so ago on the 150th anniversary with a group of phenomenal judges and scholars, which you can hear on our Live in America's Town Hall feed. The Equal Protection Clause says, no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. We talked about being an originalist, and what I want to signal out is those special words, protection of the laws. At the, at the time, they were thought of as a term of art that really applied in a limited, narrow way to police protection. The idea is that you couldn't allow racist mobs to attack the freedmen and not punish them, but while extending to white citizens police protection. So the most important thing that the Equal Protection Clause is designed to ensure is that the same protection from violence that is extended to white citizens is extended to all citizens on equal terms. But over the course of our uh, the past century, the Equal Protection Clause has dramatically expanded and probably is the clause at the center of many of our most hotly contested constitutional issues. And in that sense, it's not the Department of Justice that has created protected classes, but the Supreme Court itself. And now I tried to do originalism, everything you needed to know about originalism in <laughs> a few beats, and that sure was successful in being concise. <laughs> Let me really try to do the elevator version of, I'll give you the red light. Okay, I, I may need yeah. it uh, soon. Yeah. But, the, you know, listeners, the great thing about constitutional law, which is so exciting to study, is there's not a lot of doctrine. So here, we're just going to give it all out for free on the <laughs> podcast, and you don't have to go to law school and get deeply uh, in debt because you can figure you can, you can get the gist of it all from this wonderful We the People podcast. Um, the Supreme Court has set out a series of tests for deciding whether or not something is what's called a suspect class. Uh, uh, here are the tests. There are four of them. First, uh, is the group defined by an immutable characteristic? Second, has the group suffered from a history of discrimination? Third, uh, is the group politically powerless? Fourth, does the trait at issue relate to the group's ability to contribute to society? Those tests came from a case called Frontiero in the 1970s involving gender discrimination, but they've been spelled out in different cases. And applying those tests, the court has recognized five suspect classes. And I'll tell you what, the, what, what it means to be a suspect class in a second. But here are the five. Race, national origin, alienage, gender, and the marital status of your parents. And all these classifications reflect the court's judgment that these groups meet those criteria for suspectness. They generally are defined by an immutable trait. They've suffered from a history of discrimination. They uh, are not able to fend for themselves in the political process, and their traits don't relate to their ability to contribute to society. What does it mean to be a suspect class? Now, here's the really, I, I always save this bit of jargony doctrine for the middle of the semester because it's, it's, so, it's a party trick to be able to reel off these uh, categories. If something is a suspect class, then any law that affects it has to be necessary 
to achieve a compelling governmental interest, necessary to achieve a compelling governmental interest. If something is not a suspect class and is just uh, the law is not subject to any kind of heightened scrutiny, then the law just has to be uh, rationally related to a legitimate governmental interest. But to keep things interesting and to make it seem like constitutional law is actually a, a technical uh, and mysterious field <laughs> as opposed to something that is rather <laughs> malleable in, in its uh, judgments, we have a we have a third category behind door number three, and that's a semi-suspect class. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord is right. But the, but really, it's fine, because once you know this, then you know all of con law. Oh, so good, great. You can, you can skip. So, yeah. uh, yeah. Nicondra is going to go to Columbia in, in a year, which is totally great, and we're very proud of him. Oh, we're also nice. very happy that he's going to be here next year, continuing to run the We the People podcast. But he will be in great shape in first-year con law class, because he'll know that a semi-suspect class, if a law affects it, has to be substantially related to an important governmental interest. Now, if you parse those three categories, it's really, they're just adjectives that are describing with various degrees of precision how close the relation between the um, government's interest and the law is. It's called narrow tailoring or fit. So the reason that we ask for laws affecting suspect classes to be necessary to achieve a compelling governmental interest is because race discrimination, to take the paradigmatic case, is so dangerous, is so suspicious, is so disfavored that we want an incredibly good reason for any law that justifies it, like an emergency, a threat to life or limb. Uh, and we want to make sure that the connection is really close because we want to make sure that the law is not really a ruse or a mask for an illicit purpose, namely racial discrimination. So if the government comes in and says we need to keep, um, say, African-American prisoners uh, in separate parts of the prison for their own safety, uh, the court would ask, is that a racist act of segregation or is it actually related to a legitimate public safety concern? And that's why we require that narrow tailoring. So there you got it. And just to review class, I mean, we can really do it pretty fast. That we, we, You know the suspect classes, race, national origin, alienage, gender, and the marital status of uh, the parents. That comes from a really confusing case called Plyler and Doe, which you can check out online if you want a little bit of extra drama. And then um, the, the semi-suspect classes, which are subject to intermediate scrutiny, uh, gender is the paradigmatic uh, one, and also the children of illegal uh, aliens, and that's the Plyler case, seem to be semi-suspect. Now, uh, all the action in con law for years was trying to argue that uh, gays and lesbians, that sexual orientation should also be a suspect or semi-suspect class. But interestingly, Justice Kennedy in his Obergefell decision and in his other important gay rights decisions, did not recognize gays and lesbians as a new suspect or semi-suspect class, even though proponents argued that sexual orientation meets many of the qualities that we've been reeling off. They argue sexual orientation is immutable. Gays um, are, if not politically powerless, may be disadvantaged in the political process. Sexual orientation has no relation to an ability to contribute to society and uh, gays have and lesbians have suffered from a history of discrimination. But Justice Kennedy has preferred to emphasize values like dignity and to, and he's applied something called, God, we are getting jargony here and the good news is that there's not much more of this in common law class, but he's applied what's called rational basis review with bite, which sounds like, I don't know, like you're eating a delicious dessert, but actually it just means yum. Constitutional law itself is a delicious dessert, wow. part wow. of the feast that represents our constitutional law. <laughs> nice, <laughs> very nice, sir. Um, but uh, the basic idea is that 
we're going to purport to apply what's called rational basis review. We're just going to ask, is there some rational reason for the law that's not based on animus? Because Justice Kennedy said moral disapproval or pure animus is not a rational reason and can't survive even under the lowest form of constitutional scrutiny. And a whole bunch of cases, including the gay marriage case, he said, hey, you're giving us all these reasons like uh, encouraging procreation or, or promoting responsible procreation. We don't think those are real reasons. We think they're a mask for animus, and that fails rational basis review. So there you have, you know, that really there's not much more doctrine in uh, under the Equal Protection Clause than that. And that's the answer to the question, what about these suspect classes? It's not the Department of Justice that's creating them. It's the uh, Supreme Court itself in interpreting the Equal Protection Clause. As for the other questions, um, if Congress exempts itself from certain laws, how is this not a violation? Um, it's important that the suspect class approach uh, only governs constitutional claims. Uh, Congress has passed laws that prohibit discrimination for groups that don't constitute suspect classes, like age discrimination and the Age Discrimination Act. And Cong but Congress initially exempted itself from certain non-discrimination laws until it passed the Congressional Accountability Act of 1995 and subjected itself to 13 different civil rights laws. There are some exceptions. Congress still exempts itself from mandatory training and record-keeping requirements. And, well, I mean, right. it's very hard to keep those records. I mean, you know, it's, it's rather burdensome. So. Right, right. Um, uh, and it, obviously Congress can't exempt itself from the Constitution's own requirements. And in a case called Bowling and Sharp, the Supreme Court said that the Equal Protection Clause applies to the federal government, even though it seems to apply only to states. And we can talk in another time about why that may not be as inconsistent with the text and original understanding as it seems. Uh, spoiler alert, the answer has to do with the Privileges or Immunities Clause. But the bottom line is that Congress can exempt itself from statutes that it passes without violating the Equal Protection Clause, because as long as the exemption itself doesn't create unconstitutional suspect classifications or burden fundamental rights. Uh, there are many laws that exempt government actors from liability. The justification is that it's expensive for taxpayers to uh, hold government ac actors accountable. And uh, nevertheless, some have argued that we do need a 28th Amendment to the Constitution, providing all members of Congress have to comply with all laws that other citizens have to ob obey. I've been smiling this whole time, Jeff, because uh, we were just talking about First Amendment values. I think 14th Amendment values should also be at stake in the debate over Harvard Final Clubs. Um, uh, we well, good. Well, we will put those on the table. And indeed, we know that 14th Amendment values and equality values, as uh, embodied in Title IX, have been raised in that debate. So we will certainly uh, talk about the tension between the First and 14th Amendment and between Title IX and free expression. Great. And of course, we're also awaiting a decision from the court in the Fisher affirmative action case, which is all about this, what a compelling interest is, uh, how race is involved and all that. So I'm sure we'll have a podcast discussion soon. That will be great. Okay. Um, I think we've ran out of time. We've uh, done some deep dives on some good questions. I should note that one listener wrote in about the issue of the Senate holding hearings on a Supreme Court nominee, uh, namely Merrick Garland. And does the Constitution require the Senate to do that? We have a town hall program tonight, Jeff, on that very topic. Would you like to tell everybody about that? We do. It's just going to be another blockbuster program. Uh, you've heard the podcast that we had with Erwin Chemerinsky and Mike Ramsey about whether we need Senate hearings. Our phenomenal series with The Atlantic magazine called Confirmations, which is publishing pieces from scholars on both sides of the aisle 
uh, just published a piece by Mike Ramsey jumping off the podcast saying the Senate had no duty to hold hearings. And tonight we'll unite scholars, including the Constitution Center's own Mike Gerhardt, our scholar in residence, and Josh Blackman, a great friend of the podcast and other scholars, will be uh, making the arguments on both sides, and it's just going to be a wonderful discussion. Uh, so with that, let me thank listeners for great questions. Um, if, if you want to, there, there was one other good one, and if you write in, then I'll send you the uh, a tentative answer to it if you're curious. And the basic question is, uh, a listener doesn't like five to four decisions, and the proposed remedy is to replace the majority rule with a supermajority requirement of 75% of all Supreme Court decisions. There's a really interesting history on that, and anyone who takes the time to email me at jrosen. Uh, at constitutioncenter.org, I will send you some tentative thoughts in response. Thanks to listeners. Thanks to Nicandro for being a superb interlocutor. Uh, and uh, please join us next week for our phenomenal, well, let me not, not boast. Please join us next week to hear um, described this new book about Louis Brandeis, which uh, does, in fact, describe the most inspiring Supreme Court justice of the 20th <laughs> century. But the real plug for... The Brandeis program is not me, but we've got Brandeis's greatest living biographers. Mel Urofsky and Philippa Strom are going to join me to discuss Brandeis and his legacy. And we're going to ask the immortal question, WWBD, what would Brandeis do? That's next week on We the People. For now, thank you for joining. And on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and both produced and guest interlocuted by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg, Lana Ulrich, and Daniele Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, twitter.com forward slash constitutionctr. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. While you're in the iTunes store, leave us a rating and review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center, across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com forward slash Panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support and we rely on the generosity of people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more.